This morning we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 14. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to look at the passage, and it will probably be helpful uh, if you do so. We're going to cover almost all of the chapter today. Everything that happens in this chapter uh, takes place around the Sea of Galilee. As you can see there, where, where the red dot is, that is Capernaum. Now, Capernaum and the areas all around there, Bethsaida, Gennesaret, all in, around there, Tiberias, that's where most of Jesus' ministry took place. Now, obviously, he went south into Judea and Jerusalem, but he spent a lot of time around the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we are today. We're going to look at three stories. We're going to look at the uh, beheading of John the Baptist. We're going to look at Jesus feeding the 5,000, and we're going to look at Jesus walking on water. And all of that takes place here. In fact, uh, the story uh, that we're going to get into about the beheading of John the Baptist. You see Tiberius there on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee? Everybody see that? Well, Tiberius was built by Herod Antipas, who is the key figure who actually is the one that uh, ordered the beheading of John. And so uh, that's a very interesting history, and we'll get into some more of that momentarily. But I wanted to show you uh, the Sea of Galilee. I wanted to uh, let you see sort of the areas that we're going to be talking about. You see up there in the top right, Bethsaida, it's around that area where Jesus fed the 5,000. And then where the red dot is, uh, in between there, uh, on the north side of the sea, uh, that's where, uh, somewhere in that area, where Jesus walked on the water. Now that is an actual picture of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, I got to stay in Tiberias uh, for a few nights, and uh, there is a picture uh, of part of Tiberias. You see that tall tower on the right side? Uh, our hotel was just uh, farther to the right, uh, which obviously you cannot see. But anyway, it's a beautiful, beautiful area, and uh, it was amazing to get to spend time all around there and uh, take a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee and all that kind of thing. There's another picture of the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, let's move on to our text. John the Baptist, of course, was about six months older than Jesus. He actually was a cousin of Jesus. He was a forerunner of Jesus who came to prepare the way of Christ. The Bible says he came in the spirit of Elijah. And so uh, he is a very key figure. We remember at one point in the early chapters of John, I think about John chapter 3 or so, uh, John made the statement about Jesus when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In that context, John said, He must increase and I must decrease. Remember, John came preaching in the wilderness. And uh, what we find here with his execution, 
shows that John was completely uh, taken out of the way and his work had been done. And so Herod, the Tetrarch, Tetrarch means a quarter. So he was the ruler of a quarter of that area. And in fact, that area on the west side of the Sea of Galilee where Tiberius was, remember I said he built that city? Well, that was the area that he ruled. And then uh, a narrow strip of land a number of miles south of there on the other side of Jordan, he also ruled that. So he was married, and uh, his wife, uh, I, I thought I'd be better off not trying to pronounce her name, but anyway, she was the daughter of a king, King Aretas of Nabatea. Now, if you had a map and you looked at Saudi Arabia, the Nabataeans uh, controlled the far northwest corner of Saudi Arabia on the coast of the Red Sea, uh, the Arabian Peninsula there. And so they were a nomadic people who, who traveled around. They were brilliant people. In fact, some historians say that they were some of the most brilliant people that existed on the earth at that time, and they became a very wealthy people. And so, like you've probably seen in movies and everything, there were a lot of arranged marriages between kings and of one nation and kings of another nation and powerful people, and there were political marriages. Uh, it all had to do with power and rulership and all that sort of thing. And so, Herod the Tetrarch, Antipas in other words, he was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Now, everybody remembers Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of Judea whenever Jesus was born, and he is the madman. He was a genius in some ways, actually. That's a whole nother lesson. But Herod the Great was a brilliant man in many ways, but he was also a madman in many ways. And remember, he's the one that sent out the decree to slaughter all of the male children in the area who were two years old and under because he was trying to find and eliminate this newborn king that he had heard about. And so Herod had two wives. Uh, he wound up killing them. Uh, in fact, if you think about the Herodian dynasty, I'm actually kind of surprised they haven't made a Netflix series on it or something because you talk about a messed up, twisted, perverted, violent, sick family. That's what they were in almost every way you can imagine. And so Herod had a couple of wives. One of the wives, uh, he had a number of sons, and one of them was named Philip. The other wife had a number of sons through her, and one of them, the youngest, was Antipas. Now, Philip had married a woman named Herodias. And remember, Herodias was the daughter of King Aretas of Nabatea. So think about this. Philip is married to this princess for political reasons and power. But Herodias, she decided she didn't like Philip. She liked his brother, his half-brother. She wanted his half-brother. She divorced Philip. 
Now that's a pretty amazing thing back in that day and time and in that part of the world uh, usually women had no power to divorce but she was a very powerful woman evidently and so she decided she wanted Antipas. Now here's the thing that's really messed up. She is a granddaughter of Herod the Great so when she was married to Philip she was married to her uncle, okay? Because her father was Archelaus, Herod Archelaus. Now she divorces her uncle and then she marries another uncle. They were stepbrothers, you see. And so it's a twisted, sordid, messed up situation and it really cost them all because uh, the king of Nabataea was not happy about this. And so he actually uh, went to war later on with Antipas and soundly defeated him. And he actually sent Antipas and Herodias to Spain in exile. He got rid of them. So anyway, just some interesting history there. So this is the Herod. Herod Antipas is the Herod, remember, during Jesus' trials where he's before Pilate and Pilate sends him to Herod. This is the Herod that he was sent to. He was a very, very uh, terrible person, really. So... Anyway, remember what Jesus said about John. He was a prophet and more than a prophet. In fact, he said of those born of women, there was no one greater than John. And uh, so John really took the fate of most prophets. He wound up getting killed. Prophets were spokesmen of God. They spoke warnings. They called people to repentance. And in this case, this was, according to the law of Moses, an incestuous marriage. Antipas and Herodias had no right to be married. Philip was still alive, his half-brother, and so the marriage was all wrong. And so John the Baptist spoke out and preached that they needed to dissolve that marriage. They needed to repent that it was wrong for Antipas and Herodias to be married. Well, this infuriated the princess. And there's a lesson in this, I think. You know, whenever someone confronts you with your sin, how do you respond? How do you feel? Well, in her case, she got mad. And she held a grudge. She had her husband arrest John the Baptist. And not only did she have him arrest him, but she wanted him dead. That wasn't good enough. And so when the time came that her husband threw a big party and had a lot of dignitaries around, she sends her daughter Salome in to do a dance in front of all of these dignitaries. Now you can imagine what kind of dance that might have been because Herod was so excited about things that he told her, 
I'll give you anything you want, up to half the kingdom. Well, I imagine he was in a drunken stupor whenever he said that. You know, they'd been partying for a while and feasting for a while, and so uh, he's just spouting off. And she goes to her mother and tells her mother what he had said, and she said, what should I ask for? And she said, you tell him I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter now. And so he hated that because he actually kind of liked John. In Mark chapter 6, the Bible actually tells us that he enjoyed John's preaching and he thought he was a good man, a righteous man. And so he really didn't want to kill John. But because he had spouted off in front of all these dignitaries and he didn't want to uh, not keep his word, and isn't that ironic? I mean, think about it. Here is this guy with this totally messed up situation. His marriage is wrong. He's in an adulterous situation. He's, he's someone that history tells us was just, like I said, a terrible person. And yet, he's concerned about keeping his word. And that's another thing that's just kind of weird that we need to think about. Isn't it interesting how some people are so determined to have morals or to have convictions about one thing and then the rest of their life is just all jacked up and, and wicked and evil? And that's, that's the kind of thing you see here. A lot of things to look at, a lot of things to learn uh, what not to be like by looking at uh, the, the family of Herod. So anyway, Herod keeps his word. He has John the Baptist beheaded, and they bring his head in on a plate. Imagine that. In the middle of a big party, and here comes the girl with John the Baptist's head on a plate. So, this got around to Jesus. Like I said, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. Um, there's a few of them. But this gets around to Jesus, and the Bible says, when he heard it, he went up into a mountain by himself to pray. So he spent some time up there on the mountain, and then he realizes that there are a lot of people who have learned about his whereabouts, and people are gathering around. There are cities, remember, all, there are little villages and towns all around the Sea of Galilee. And as word is spread about Jesus and his popularity grows and people find out where he's at, everybody starts running to him. And when somebody finds out where he is, word spreads and now there's a huge multitude of people coming to Jesus. And so he teaches them. Most of the day, he just teaches these people. And then as night is drawing near, he looks out around the crowd and everything, and he realizes, hey, these people are hungry. They need something to eat. The Bible says he had compassion on them. He had healed a lot of people. He had taught these people. He was doing good. Now look at the contrast of Jesus' meal, feeding the 5,000, and Herod's feast, his party. 
All the difference in the world. And if you look at it, it's a, it's a dramatic contrast to a person who is the, supposedly a ruler of the Jews. And here's Jesus, the king or the ruler of the Jews. And look how he treats people. And look how Herod treats people. Look at the way he parties and feasts. And look at how Jesus responds to the needs of people around him. And so there's a lot of things that we can look at and we can learn about the kind of person that Jesus was. Now, so the, the conversation probably went something like this. The disciples, some of them, they come to Jesus and they say, look, you got to send these people home. It's getting late. They need to go, go home and, and find something to eat. Uh, we don't have anything here to feed them. And uh, Jesus essentially says, well, you feed them. And they're like, feed them what? We don't even have enough money. It, it would cost 200 denarii, which is a day's wages. It would cost 200 days wages to go and buy enough bread somewhere to be able to feed these people just to give them a little bit. And, you know, what store is going to have that? We're talking eight months of salary, okay? There's 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children are there. The Bible just talks about 5,000, but there probably were more than that there. So how are we going to feed these people? And Jesus says, you feed them. And in all the conversation and, and the, the confusion about what are we going to do, and you know, Jesus is telling them to, to take care of it, things, and they're telling him, you got to get rid of these people, and all this is going on. And in the middle of all that, Andrew comes up and he says, well, I found this boy over here. He's got five loaves and two fish, but that's nothing. That's not going to do anything. And Jesus says, you just tell everybody to sit down in groups and give me those five loaves and those two fish. Okay, whatever. And so they do. And Jesus starts breaking the loaves and giving to the disciples. And he just keeps breaking and he keeps breaking and he keeps breaking and keeps breaking and they distribute all this bread. And everybody eats the fish and the bread. And then when they're finished, they take up 12 baskets full of leftovers. Wow. Are you kidding me? Do you see what he just did? What does that tell you about him? Well, it tells us a lot of things about Jesus. It tells us, like we said, he has compassion. He knows the needs that we have. And he provides. He provides our needs, and he does so abundantly. He not only just takes care of his people, but he takes care of us very well. And I think there are many of us here today, we could testify to that very thing. We have been provided for. We have been taken care of. But there's a lot of spiritual lessons in this feeding of the 5,000. And the one who brings all of this out is John. And we find that in John chapter 6. And so I want to look at that momentarily. They said to him, now this happened the day, the, what we're reading here is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus goes back to Capernaum, he's in the synagogue, and this is the conversation that he's having with people in the synagogue. They said to him, then what sign do you do 
that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now imagine this kind of preaching. They're at the synagogue. Jesus stands up, and he is teaching. And everybody, no doubt, is aware of what happened the day before, the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, I believe it's Mark's account that at the end of that section where he talks about them feeding the 5,000, he makes the statement that many of the people said at that time, this is the prophet that was spoken of. Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know the person that he's referring to and the situation he's referring to. He's referring to when Moses told the nation of Israel that one of these days a prophet would come like him and that the people would listen to him and follow him. So that's the connection they make. They're making a connection. When he fed the 5,000, in their minds, based on their history and their knowledge of what's taking place, they're looking at this and they're thinking Exodus, Moses, deliverance, freedom, the manna from heaven. God provided bread for them for 40 years uh, out of heaven. I mean, think about that. And so that's what they're thinking about. They're making that connection. And so Jesus says, I am the bread who comes down from heaven. And they're like, what? What is he talking about? I am the bread. And he's, furthermore, he said, if you eat this bread, you'll never die. You'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. What is he talking about? He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When you read that, 
What comes to your mind? What do you think about? The Lord's Supper. Sure. But people say, well, that has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper because the church didn't even exist when Jesus fed the 5,000. So it couldn't have anything to do with the Lord's Supper. Well, let's put on the brakes, okay? Wait just a minute here. When was the book of John written? Towards the end of the first century, most scholars say, right? So the church has existed for 50 to 60 years. So the Christians who received this word 50 or 60 years later, do you think they might have thought it had something to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, of course, because what else? What else does eating the flesh and drinking the blood refer to? If it doesn't refer to the Lord's Supper, then what does it refer to? What would they think about? What would enter their mind? And so when we put the pieces of the puzzle together, it helps us understand why we eat the Lord's Supper. Because when we eat this bread, what we're doing is showing that we are living because of Christ. When we eat the flesh, remember he said, this is my body, right? This is my body, which is given for you. So when we eat from this bread, we're showing that we are in Christ, we are followers of Christ, we are participating in the life of Christ because of our faith in him. And this participation in Christ, this life that we have in Christ, in some way is signified or represented by the fact that we all share in this loaf, in this eating, in this bread. And just like the manna from heaven kept them alive and provided nourishment for them, this gives us a spiritual life, a spiritual nourishment. We have eternal life. And when Jesus said, if you eat this bread, you'll never die, he was not talking about your literal physical body. He was talking about your connection, your relationship with God. You have eternal life in Christ. And that's why we assemble every Lord's Day and we eat his flesh and we drink his blood because he abides in us and we abide in him. Does that make sense? I hope so. Now here's the thing. When Matthew moves on, he didn't say all those things that John said. We have the benefit of having the Word of God where we can study what each one of the writers had to say. We can compare what each one of them said, and we can draw from the things that they said, and it helps us to learn and better understand exactly what the ramifications are for all of this. 
And that's what I want you to see. I, I want you to understand that this exodus, the story of the exodus, the story of God feeding the children of Israel with manna, with bread from heaven, all points to this. The Passover, the Passover supper, it points to this. This concept of eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood, it points to this. And so I hope we can see that in this passage. The last story we're going to look at, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went on up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, now that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., okay? So they've been rowing a long time. In fact, if you look at what Mark says, there was a stiff headwind blowing against them. You ever try to row a boat against a really strong wind? You ever try to do that? I tried to do that one time when I was fishing. It was a very, very windy day, and um, I caught a fish, and I, we were fishing for redfish, and so it's a pretty good-sized fish, and we were in a little boat, and the fish was pulling the boat around some, and so I'm reeling that thing, and the fish is taking off, and we're trying to reel, I'm trying to reel, and we're going straight into the wind. And the next thing I knew, my partner, he was paddling, paddling while I'm fishing, trying to get the fish in, and he's paddling for all he's worth. And the next thing I know, we're about 50 yards back of where we were. I'm telling you something, it ain't easy rowing against a stiff wind. Now imagine disciples are in the boat, so there's probably several guys rowing, right? And they're getting after it and they're doing the best they can. But I'm going to tell you something else. You row very long, it'll wear you out. Now they've been here for hours. Hours. And they still haven't got to shore. And all of a sudden somebody sees something. What is that? And some of them look up there and they, somebody says, it's a ghost. Well, I wonder what Josh would do if everybody said, it's a ghost. You see, the Jews believed that the sea was a place where evil spirits lived. And so it's quite natural that they would say that. So they believed that the sea, the storms, the chaos and everything, uh, that had to do with evil spirits. And so they're scared. They are genuinely afraid that there is some kind of demon, there's some kind of spirit, there's something walking towards them.
And so they're afraid. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's, it's me. So obviously he was far enough away or whatever, the, the winds, the rain, the clouds, whatever. They couldn't recognize him. So anyway, that calms them down a little bit. Hey, at least we're not dealing with a ghost here, a demon, and it's Jesus. But can you imagine what you would think if you saw that? I imagine most of us would think, that, you can't do that. What is he doing? How's he doing that? What's, what's happening here? He is literally walking on the water in the middle of a storm. That's what he's doing. And so he gets closer and closer, and they must be awestruck at what they're seeing. And so Peter, the outspoken one, the leader of the group, he just says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out there. Let me, let me walk on the water. If you were in the boat, would you do that? Hey, Jesus, let me come out there with you. Well, probably not. I don't think I would. But that's Peter. And so sure enough, Peter steps out of the boat, and Peter starts walking on the water. But then the Bible says he saw the wind. Well, you can't, you can't see the wind. How do you see the wind? Well, what you do is you see the effects of the wind, right? Around here, you might see leaves blowing and dust blowing and whatever. You can see the effects of the wind. Well, what would be the effects of a stiff wind on a lake? That's right. We're talking waves here. I did a little research on this on the Sea of Tiberias, and without boring you with all the geography and all the weather patterns and all the kind of things that happen, uh, literally there's a news story in December of 2010. That's not that long ago, okay? There was a news story of 2010 on the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, where there were 30-foot waves that were crashing so high onto the shore that they busted out the windows and stuff of a Holiday Inn. So it can get rough on the Sea of Galilee. Crazy rough. So just imagine a storm is going on, a big storm, and Peter begins to look around and look at the waves and feel the rain and probably lightning and everything else going on, and he begins to sink. And he's sinking fast. And he reaches out his hand and he cries out, Lord, save me! And Jesus takes his hand and he pulls him up. And he saves him. Now think about what happened here. As long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus... He was standing and walking on the water in the midst of a storm. We all have storms in our life. We all have things that happen. We all have hard times and dark times and trouble times. We all go through stuff that's not pleasant, it's not fun. Many people here can tell testimonies of awful, awful things that they've had to go through and live through in life. Lots of of bad things can happen in life. 
But through all your storms, through all your struggles, if you will just keep your eyes on Jesus, you can walk on the water. Now think about that. You can walk on the water. Well, what, what's that mean, walk on the water? Praise team, come on up here, please. The water, remember, the storms, the lake, the sea, all of that to the Jewish mind in the first century, to their mind, to their thinking, it represented the world. It represented all the bad and wrong and difficult things that happen in life. That's what it meant to them. And so when Jesus is walking on the water, he's showing that he is the Son of God. He is a power that is not only above and beyond the physical water and the storm, but he is a power that is greater and more powerful than any storm or difficulty that any of us will ever have. Jesus is the one we've got to keep our eyes on. We've got to keep our focus on. We've got to keep looking at him. He is Lord of all. He's Lord of the storms, the physical, literal storms. When he stepped into the boat, boom. The Bible says it was still. The storm stopped. Is Jesus in the boat with you? Is he in your boat? Is your boat rocking on a raging sea? Are you having trouble? Are you sinking? Are you fearful because of all the stuff that you're living through and going through? Well, get Jesus in your boat. Ask Jesus in. Invite him in. Stay with him. Look at him. Watch him. Study him. Follow him. And you're going to be all right. You're going to make it. And in that sense, in that way, you can actually walk on the water. 